Now we're hearing a lot more about vaccines these days. Uh, of course, there's no shortage of human vaccines tried and tested over many, many years. And in farming, we're well used to the value of vaccine programmes in terms of animal health uh, prevention. Charles Chavas of Zoetis, um, your company is engaged in, in various vaccine programmes and development for animals over, over a long period of time and a huge success in that area. Yes, Matt, and you know, vaccinations are now part of um, modern farming and they're one of the tools we have in controlling disease. Um, but I mean, I suppose one of the things that I have been very conscious of over my, um, my career as a, as a veterinary practitioner is that whereas vaccines are part of the solution, they're not a silver bullet either. And in a way, the current situation we find ourselves in is probably going to uh, going to highlight that um, in the sense that, you know, if you think about what people have achieved and what's been achieved in this country over the last three months in controlling a disease without a vaccine um, by using other methods is, is quite remarkable and, and is admirable as what people have managed to do. Um, and when the vaccine, if the vaccine, and we hope it will arrive, uh, it'll be part of the, the solution, but it won't be the complete solution. So, you know, people may take the attitude, oh, once we've got a vaccine, we can go back to normal, everything can carry on. I would suggest that that won't be the whole answer. There will be other things that need to be done as well. And in my experience, and I suppose our company particularly, we've worked a lot with uh, respiratory vaccines over the years. And we know that whereas um, using something like, I know, Rispol IBR Live or using Rispol RSPI through intranasal, it's part of a control program. But you also need to be conscious of calf has design, uh, management factors, and all these other aspects as well. So, you know, vaccines are sometimes held up as a silver bullet. Um, they're not. They're part of the solution. Uh, and used properly, they can make a big difference. But it is important to take in the other management considerations um, as well. Yeah, and environmental conditions and so on. We're all getting very expert on, on vaccines, if only from listening to news bulletins and reading items online and uh, so on. Charles, we hear a lot about how devious, if you like, viruses are, that they can mutate and change and develop in order to protect themselves. Is it the same in animals, uh, in animal viruses? Do, do you have to continuously tweak vaccines? Yes. Um, they, certain viruses uh, change more than other viruses. And, they, and, and, and when we make a vaccine we're not generally making the vaccine for the whole of the virus. What we're doing is we're making it for key parts of the virus. So, you know, I mean, IBR is actually quite a, uh, a good one to um, to explain it with because uh, many of your listeners will be used to hearing about IgB and, and, and IgE. And these basically, the, the, the GB and the GE proteins are proteins on the outside of the virus. And for instance, our, um, the vaccines that, um, uh, that we use are all what they call deleted vaccines, they're marker vaccines. So we can tell the difference between an animal that's been infected by the wild virus versus an animal that has been vaccinated. Now, if you um, uh, vaccinate an animal, you remove one of the proteins. So we actually only vaccinate them um, with the with the GB um, um, antibody. Whereas if the animal is um, exposed to the wild virus, it gets every bit of the virus as, as stimulates its immune system and it produces antibodies to both GB, GE, and there are various other proteins as well. So 
if you liken it to as long as you go and protect against some of the really key parts of the virus, you will manage to, to, to stimulate the right part of the immune system. But if you don't have those key parts, then we'd have to tweak the virus or to tweak the, tweak the vaccine. Now, flu vaccines are notorious for changing. So again, in animal health, when we look at equine flu vaccination, we're constantly evolving those vaccines. Fortunately, the principal viruses that cause pneumonia, for instance, in cattle, where I'm looking at RSV, PI3 and IBR would be the three big, big players on the viral side. They don't seem to change very much. So we haven't had to tweak those as much. And the other thing, Matt, with vaccines, and this is really important um, to remember, is the fact that vaccines stimulate the immune system within an animal or within a person who's been vaccinated. And it's basically a sort of contract between the vaccine and the animal's immune system. Vaccines themselves don't protect the animal. Vaccines stimulate the immune system within the animal. So you need an effective vaccine and you also need an effective immune system. If the animal is immunosuppressed, and that could happen because it's just recovered from uh, calving, it's very sick, um, it's got ketosis, it's got milk fever, you've just treated with a large dose of steroids, all of those reasons will mean the immune system isn't going to be responsive. Oh, sorry, another one is, which you can remember as well, which is important for weanlings. You've just disbudded or dehorned an animal. That's stressful. If you stress an animal, the vaccine won't work because the immune system has been effectively um, turned off. And this is hugely important also in human health because people who are unfortunately on um, chemotherapy, for instance, their immune system is going to be potentially suppressed, so they can't be vaccinated either. So, you know, vaccines are a really, really, really useful tool um, and used properly, they're going to make a huge difference. But it's really important that we use them um, properly. And it's not as easy as using an antibiotic to treat an, uh, um, um, a bacterial infection or using an anthelmintic to treat worms, where effectively you're almost adding a chemical that will then just go and neutralize something. What you're actually doing with these vaccines is we're um, stimulating a natural system within ourselves that's developed over millions of years and making it then uh, fight off the um, um, fight off the virus. In, in layman's terms, Charles, we're talking in some instances at least, if I if I'm correct, in mitigation as much as total prevention. I think that's a fair comment. Yes, I mean that is that is it, and this exposes why you. Know, it's not they're, they're not a silver bullet. Is the fact that um, it you know it is part of the, the of the of the plan. It's not the it's not the, um, the, the the whole plan. And you know and in fairness, many of your listeners are well aware of this when it looks at calf pneumonia because they know they have to get the colostrum feeding right. But you don't start off with that basic building box. It doesn't really matter what you do after that. So you've got to get the colostrum management. You then have to make sure that you've got a suitable calf shed. You know where you know the environment is suitable for them, where they're getting fresh air and they're not sharing it with other animals. Um, you know, getting that design right. And then we also need to take into consideration using vaccines to boost their uh, um, uh, immunity. And I often talk about it, it's like standing on a three-legged stool. If you look after all three legs of a three-legged stool, you can stand there all day, no problem at all. If one of those legs has got a woodworm or it's half the length, you're liable to fall off that stool. The same is true of calf pneumonia. So with calf pneumonia, you need to give you need to feed them properly. That's one leg of the stool. You need an appropriate calf shed, which is properly designed and properly managed. That's the second leg. And the third leg is about um, boosting the protection of the individual animals, and that's the vaccination. If you decide you're not going to bother vaccinating and you're just going to rely on, for instance, good colostrum management and a good calf shed, you'll probably fall off the stool.
it's a total package, a total health yeah. program. Charles, let's just get down to the farm for a moment, if we can. Um, uh, this time of the year, uh, we're in a dry time at the moment anyway, but uh, in terms of, of, of an annual vaccine program and maybe targeting a few issues that may arise over the summer, uh, your, your advice there? Well, the, I suppose looking at calves and weanlings going out to grass, you know, in, in Ireland we have um, issues with clostridial diseases, you know, black leg um, um, in particular. I mean, you know, it's sort of a common one that everyone talks about, but, you know, there's a multitude of clostridial diseases. And vaccinating before they, and, and they basically pick that up when they're at pasture. So um, vaccinating against um, um, clostridial diseases or clostridial toxins is a, is a good plan. So frequently animals will be vaccinated just before they're turned out. But also frequently they don't get the second shot. And with those vaccines and with many vaccines, to actually stimulate immunity, it's very important they get one, one dose and then another dose four to six weeks later. And I do mean four to six weeks later. We don't mean six months later. And certainly as a practitioner, I used to find sometimes I'd be talking to a fellow in September, October, we'd have an animal dead in the field who had um, black leg. And I'd be saying, I thought you're vaccinated. And he said, sure, I did. I did them in April. When did you give them a second shot? Oh, I know I didn't bother doing that. It's really important that you use these, you know, this is about using them properly. So that's one that's obviously, it's sort of almost passed, okay? Another one that's really sort of coming on the cards right now is the fact that a lot of dairy heifer calves will be, uh, will have passed three months of age now, or they'll be just about to get to three months of age. Um, so they can now join an IBR program. And, you know, you, they, they need to be vaccinated at some point during the summer. While they're outside of grass, their chance of picking up IBR are actually quite small because um, IBR doesn't travel much more than about five to eight metres from, another, from another, another animal who's got the IBR. And if you've got a group of calves who are being reared on the pasture, they're not having huge contact with older animals. But the moment we bring them into the shed, that changes. So really, any time between now and September, October is when you want to start off by using your um, IBR Live vaccines now into the muscle. And you know, for instance, with the, the Ristol IBR Live, we'd recommend you give one shot now into those calves at this stage. And then in December time, they can join the annual um, vaccination program where they'd get a shot of the Ristol IBR and activate it under the skin at that stage. So that's another one that's sort of really topical at the moment. Um, the other vaccines that would be, you know, which were coming up on the horizon are the fact that you've now got a lot of cows who are hopefully pregnant. And to help protect those um, pregnancies, there's a couple of vaccines. One would be the salmonella vaccination. And that generally is done in the second half of the summer. So once they get halfway through pregnancy, you'd, you'd be talking about giving them their, um, their, their vaccination for that. Lepto vaccination should have been carried out before now in the sense that really it should have been done um, before the breeding season. And traditionally, people used to do that, uh, you know, in say, usually the people used to talk about the two same states, you know, they get the first injection on um, Valentine's Day and the second shot um, on uh, St. Patrick's Day when the herd would get their, their booster vaccination at that time. Thinking is beginning to move away from that slightly because we know that um, on farms, cows are under pressure at that time in the sense that they've just calved. You know, as I was describing, the immune system isn't exactly in the best place. Freshly carved cows who may be hanging cleanings, may have a bit of ketosis, 
may have um, had milk fever, not the best time to be vaccinating. As well as the fact that farmers, to be quite frank, are under severe pressure in the spring, and you know, your listeners all know that. Um, so there is now a move to moving to a more sensible time of year, like, for instance, December, when if you were to vaccinate in December, um, with something like Spirovac, you basically will have animals whose immune system's in the right place, i.e. they're dry, they're not under pressure, but also the man who's doing the vaccination isn't under pressure either. So I would be suggesting that people should be looking at December time for doing some of these vaccines. Try and take the workload away from the spring uh, to, a, to a quieter time of year. Um, and I suppose one I haven't mentioned, sorry, is BVD. You know, just thinking about the, the sort of main vaccines. Again, there are various vaccines out there on the BVD, but they need to, the, 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 you know, the important thing is to protect the early part of pregnancy. So again, they should have gone in before now. They should have gone in before the, um, um, the breeding season. Um, and depending on the vaccine you're using, uh, some of those can be done at any time of year. Some of them is quite specific and that they need to be done about a month before the breeding season. So unfortunately, that could fall into that March period, which isn't the best time for the animal or the beast. But with certain vaccines, you may have to do that. On the other hand, there are also uh, annual BVD vaccines, which they could be done at a quieter time of year. And you still get your 12 months protection, which obviously is going to cover the um, critical uh, first half of, um, um, of pregnancy. Charles, you're a, you're a mine of information, huge amount of uh, useful and, and, and beneficial advice there. Listen, just going back to the topic of COVID-19, and I know you're not an expert in the field, obviously not, you're, you're, you're a veterinary practitioner um, by, by background profession, but uh, what are the chances of us developing a, a, you know, a comprehensive vaccine in the next couple of years? I know there are enormous resources being put into it worldwide. I'd be... I'd be cautiously optimistic um, um, and I think that you know something will hopefully come down the, the route though but there are a few things that happened early in my career that uh, sort of guide my looking at how well and, and also what's happened during my life I mean bear in mind my working life for the last 30 years has been about controlling um, you know a contagious uh, respiratory viruses i.e. all these things that cause calf pneumonia but when I was just going just before I went to college there was a devastating disease that hit the canine population and you know you remember it parvovirus parvovirus rocked up in the late 70s early 80s and it swept through the world and a lot of dogs um, died of parvovirus and there were huge issues with it and sure when I was going through college it was great we had a vaccine and all of a sudden things got better so when people talk about post-COVID, I look at them and say, well, hang on a minute. We never got post-parvo. We still now live with parvovirus, but we have it really well managed. So using vaccination in the right way, actually, cases of parvovirus are very, very rare. They do occasionally happen, unfortunately, but we can control it. So that's an optimistic note to take away from my early life you know, as a vet. I'm looking at how vaccines have developed. And we've got a vaccine. We're using it. And we're controlling it well. You know, so Pablo isn't really a huge issue anymore. It was a massive issue, big talking point in the early 80s. Now, when I was in my second year at college, I think it was 1982, I remember when HIV turned up and AIDS. And, you know, it was a game changer. Everyone was talking about it and it had a huge impact on student life and how we socialized, etc. We still don't have a vaccine for HIV. We've learned to manage it through other ways but we still don't have a vaccine for it. So that's my word of caution. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. But yes. I mean, but having said, but I would be, I'm, um, I'm sorry, my glass has always been half full. <laughs> I'm an optimist by nature, okay? Um, I think we will develop a vaccine. Um, it is going to be hugely challenging 
developing enough of it because we're talking about vaccinating the world's population but we also need to vaccinate critical numbers it can't it won't be good enough just to go and say well i'll tell you what i'm going to vaccinate and the fact that no one else is going to do i'll be fine that isn't the reality for herd medicine to work okay or population medicine to work you need to get to a critical mass and we've seen this with measles vaccination in young children and mumps vaccination all of these issues but if you don't get above about 85 to 90 percent of the people vaccinating okay you will not get this herd immunity that the politicians talk about but it's critical that you get a critical number and we've seen this with what's happened unfortunately with mmr vaccination in humans whereas unfortunately there's been a lot of disinformation spread about um about vaccines and their side effects people forgetting how devastating measles and mumps and rubella are and realizing you know there's been and, and we've got a drop off in vaccination and as a result we have had clusters of measles and mumps which has had huge impacts on people okay because not everyone not enough people vaccinated so even when you get there i.e you've got your vaccine you're then going to have to make sure that people actually use it and I read at the weekend there of a study in the, uh, from the United States where they've done a survey. And even though we're in the middle of a pandemic at the moment, and cheapest, we're not out of it yet, and they certainly aren't out of it over in the United States of America, apparently in this survey, only 50% of Americans would actually take a vaccine if it's offered them to them tomorrow. I find that very, very concerning. Charles Chavas of Zoetis, thank you very much for giving what I think is a fascinating insight on vaccines and viruses. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. My pleasure, Matt.